Well, we should be in our Bibles now to Ezra chapter 2. Um, last week, we started our new sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Renewal and rebuilding is our theme. Let's recap just a little bit of what's been of what we, we, we saw in Ezra uh, chapter 1, as well as the context of, of the book of Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra begins with Israel still in captivity. They're still in exile in Babylon. Chapter 1 starts out around 538 B.C. and 605 B.C. The Israelites were, were actually, be, uh, that's when, um, excuse me, that's when their first exile started to, to take place in 605. In 586, Jerusalem eventually fell and was completely destroyed uh, in 586 by the Babylonians, uh, and all of the southern kingdom had completely fell to Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed and taken. Uh, things were ransacked. You can see that in 2 Chronicles 36. Um, God was judging his people. God was disciplining his people because they neglected his word. They neglected the word of God. They neglected God. They were not obedient to the word of God. They would rather follow the nations than follow the one who had set them free and have given them the blessings of the land. Through the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, and others, God had warned his people to repent over and over and over again, warned them of the judgment that was to come, very specific about the judgment that would be coming their way, and yet they never repented. And so here in Ezra chapter 1, 538 B.C., we see God stirring the heart of Cyrus like streams of water in the Lord's hands. And he stirred his heart to do what? To send God's people back to Jerusalem, back to the land, so that they can rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. After 70 years of captivity, according to Jeremiah 25.10 and Jeremiah 29.10, and Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, God had said that even Cyrus would be his shepherd and that he would fulfill God's purposes and that he would be anointed to subjections and then to open the doors and the gates that were once closed. That's Isaiah. We didn't read that last week, but that's a spectacular text. That's in the 700s God said this. Fulfilled in 538 B.C. That's the context of our, of our passage, and that's where we are, we are left from Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus now makes that decree to send God's people back, and we see God's providential care and his promises fulfilled and the provision as they go into the lands. Let's look at Ezra chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to do the whole chapter, but we're not going to read the whole chapter. It's seven verses long. Okay? I know you all want to eat sometime today. So, 
we're going to read a few verses, and I'll, I'll tell you where we're going to skip back down to. So let's look at Ezra chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those, in ex- those exiles from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem in Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Nehemiah and Sariah and Reliah and Mordecai and Bilshan and Mispar and Bigviah and Rehum and Banana. How about that? I kept on wanting to say it like one of the minions Kevin says, Banana. I kept on wanting to pronounce it that way, and I was like, don't do it. That would be really irreverent. Look now to verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,000. 720. Some of the heads of the family, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings. They made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on site according to their ability. They gave to their treasure, uh, to the treasury of the work, 61,000. Darius of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and a hundred priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. The main part of the text, which is the main part that we did not read, and you can look there, if you, maybe you've read it this week, knowing we were going to do chapter 2, is a huge list of names and numbers. Verse 2 starts off with, 11 names, and those 11 names are the leaders of the groups that went back to Jerusalem. Now, there's two names that you might recognize, Nehemiah and Mordecai. Those are not the Nehemiah and the Mordecai that we are familiar with, uh, as, as far as I know. I may be wrong on that, but as far as I know, Mordecai comes a lot later, and so does Nehemiah. These are probably men of uh, same name. But these are the leaders that went back to Jerusalem. In verse 3 to verse 67, 64 verses total, divided up into roughly eight different groups. There's more than that, but eight different groups. When you, uh, 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 another 125 names appear in this list. Not to mention the other servants and the singers and such. Why do lists like this exist in the scriptures. We find them throughout the Bible. 
We, we see them most notably in the book of Numbers, throughout the book of Numbers. That's why it's called Numbers. There are lists of genealogies throughout the scriptures. You, you see them in, uh, in, in Chronicles. You see them in the Old Testament. You also see the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels. We see Jesus' lineage. And you know the reality is, and we can admit it, just kind of like how we did this morning, and when we get to those parts of the Bible, we tend to turn our glasses into skimming glasses. And we read over them a little bit quickly. And it's okay. It's, you're safe here. You can admit it. No worries. But these lists are throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible. So it's very understandable it's very understandable for us that when we get to these chapters, like Ezra chapter 2 and some others, that we really don't get the fizz when we see these passages. One of the reasons is because Ezra chapter 2 is 64 verses long of nothing but names and numbers. And it might be a little boring to read. We want to go back and read chapter 1 again. Chapter 1 is awesome. Chapter 1 is amazing where we get to see God's sovereign hand over rulers and authorities and how God is fulfilling his promises of his scriptures. And we see his sovereign uh, provision for his people. We want to read passages like about David killing Goliath. We want to read passages of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or the the reconciliation and the redemption of, of, uh, of uh, Zacchaeus. We want to read about Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the triumph of the cross. We want the good stuff. I don't blame you. We want the good stuff. That makes for better reading. You know, it comes even to our own uh, personal histories and our own uh, genealogy. It's not something that we tend to know. Some people do. Some people know their, their genealogy, and they, they tend to en enjoy that sort of thing, and that's, uh, and that's wonderful. I, I happen to be one who, under, who enjoys some history, but to be honest with you, I couldn't really tell you much about my... Uh, I can tell you a lot about my grandparents, a little bit more about my great-grandparents, but anything after that gets a little sketchy. I need, I need some help. A, a couple um, years back, when I say a couple, it's probably been two decades now, um, my aunt started putting together a genealogy, a family tree of the, of the Roberts family. And I remember being, seeing it after my grandfather passed away. And, and this thing was huge. And I'm like, this is our family? This book is gargantuan. It's com complex and, and complicated, even when you go back just a couple of generations. Now, you can go to Ancestry.com, and you can pay for their service and look at that stuff. You could do the DNA testing, which has become very popular over the last couple of years, and you can check those things out. And they're interesting, and they're great, but the reality is, is most of us really don't know what's going on a couple generations in the past. We really don't. So why are lists like this in the Bible? Why are there 64 verses of names and numbers of people and groups here in Ezra chapter 2? And which, by the way, the same list is, is, is virtually repeated exactly in Nehemiah chapter 7. Well, the answer is right there in verse 1. 
It says, these were the people of the province from Babylonia who came up out of captivity of those exiles. What is this list of? This is a list of the people of God. And what's important is not necessarily people as much as it is God. For these are God's people. From Ezra chapter 2, I have two major points that I want to show you. One is an ongoing thing that we're going to see throughout Ezra, and, and that is this, God's faithfulness to his people. And the second one, I want to show you uh, God's people's, uh, their response to God's faithfulness. How do they respond to God's faithfulness? Well, I'll give you the answer. They respond in faithful worship. So let's look at the first one, God's faithfulness to his people. On one level, wouldn't it be helpful, just kind of think with me, wouldn't it be helpful and encouraging for the immediate generations to come from Israel to be able to look at lists like this and look at their relatives who came up out of exile, wouldn't that be helpful and encouraging to them? To, to hear of those who struggled, to hear of those who, who, who came back, who strived to the rebuilding of the, of the temple in Jerusalem, and to know that your family was part of that, part of that work. To, to know with certainty, I mean, think about this, to know with certainty that God himself stirred your grandfather or your great-grandfather, or maybe it was even your father, to come up out of captivity and to come into the land. That would be wonderful to know. Of course it would be encouraging, just like it would be encouraging and, and very neat to us to know that our forefathers might have come over on the Mayflower or, or might have traversed the Oregon Trail or, or maybe was at the Battle of Yorktown or survived Pearl Harbor. We would, we would be encouraged by those things. Because when times get tough, in Israel in particular, their leaders could point to this and say, these are your forefathers. Look where they came from. They persevered. You can persevere too, and you can honor them. Now, that's a wonderful motivation to be faithful. That's a wonderful motivation to be encouraged, but that is not the ultimate list or the ultimate purpose of this list. You see, one of the most basic things that we have to understand when we approach the scriptures is that primarily the Bible is not a book about us, but it is a book about God because it is his revelation. It's revelation of him. It reveals him. And in Ezra chapter 2, in this long list of God's people, God's people whom, whom he has preserved, whom he has brought out as a remnant, he's showing us by name and by the numbers of what? Of God's faithfulness to his people. Each name and each number, God is declaring that he keeps his covenant, that he keeps his promises to his people to preserve them even in captivity, that he has kept his promise to preserve that remnant. 
being in exile was a challenging time for God's people. And by the way, it was supposed to be. It was judgment. It was punishment. People died in captivity. Some got used to their environment. They had businesses and languages and customs and food. But remember, it was the scripture, the prophecy from Jeremiah and Isaiah that encouraged them, that encouraged them that God would renew them to back to their land and back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But God had stirred his people. He stirred his people, and what did they do? They went back. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, They came up out of captivity, and they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Just a quick side note. That's all we get about the journey. That's it. That's all we get about the journey, that they left and then they arrived. And that's all that mattered. But what did matter for redemptive history and Ezra chapter 2 is the names and the numbers and the groups. These names pointed to the guarantee that Israel in each generation is not aimlessly floating around on their own. That they have credentials with each name and recounted to them a sound of safety in the hands of their God that they belong, and that they are precious to the Lord, no matter what. Judah, the people of the province, verse 1, they had no independent authority. Persia was still their kingdom. Cyrus was still their king. But they were the people of God to whom God had promised Promises that came before Persia conquered Babylon. Promises that seemed impossible to be fulfilled. It was the Lord who had brought them out of exile, out of captivity, and he was showing them that he is faithful, that he has kept his promises. And the list of Ezra 2 is a testimony of God's faithfulness once again to his people. If you look down to verse 64, it gives us a, a total of all of those who returned. And it was 42,360. Now, if you're a math person, which I'm not, really, there's a problem. When you add up all the numbers in Ezra chapter 2, it does not equal 42,000. It equals 29,818. And that makes a difference of 12,542. How are we to take this discrepancy? Does this, does this chip away at God's faithfulness? How are we to take this discrepancy? Is there a logical explanation? Maybe like the, the differences in the numbers are the... Or, or maybe the, the women weren't counted, and maybe that's the difference in the numbers when it came to the, the numbers of groups that were being added. Maybe the, num the women weren't added up, and, and that's, a, that's a possibility. Maybe the numbers in the families were incomplete. 
They were incomplete, and the, the different groups' totals were, were not recorded as accurately, but the total, 42,360, was an accurate total sum of everybody. That's a possibility. Maybe the numbers in the manuscripts of Ezra and Nehemiah, they got off when they were being copied over and over and over and over again. And the, some of the things that I've read and encountered is that you, looking at Hebrew numbers, especially written on scrolls and parchment, can be very confusing, not just to English readers, but even to those who are copying them. And maybe there was a discrepancy there that took place. Now, mind you, those are just the manuscripts. Those aren't the autographs. God inspired the autographs. God inspired the authors of the books of the Bible, and the Holy Spirit kept them from error. We know God is true, and we know God is trustworthy, and what he has revealed to us in his word is true and without error. The Lord didn't inspire every scribe who copied over and over the Bible so as to preserve them from every error. Truthfully, this is why Ezra chapter 2 is kind of confounding to many scholars. And it's been used to actually as a, a ways to um, undermine the authority of Scripture. And certainly, this is hard to understand and even grasp, but out of any of those possibilities... It could be, could be re, no matter, it could be several different reasons why the numbers didn't add up. But what should shine through is the purpose, and that is God has kept his promises, and that he has renewed his people, and they restored the temple. To consider this one error, or these, these particular errors, or whatever you want to call it, not adding up, to be something to write the whole Bible away would be like seeing a sign that says, danger, nuclear bomb testing happening. But you look at that sign, and they miss, and you're like, well, if they misspelled nuclear, then that must mean I can walk here. No. I think we would turn around and go the other way. The Bible is true, and the Bible is inerrant inspired by the Lord. And the, again, the purpose of it is that God kept his promises and that he is renewing his people and that he is faithful. Let's talk about the number 42,360. If that's the total, which it is, the total of people who, who came back to the land, that's a, that's a pretty big number. That's certainly a bigger number than, than, than us. And, and that's, and that's a, it's a big one. But in the grand scheme of, of things, that hardly adds up to the, to the promise to Abraham that God would make his family as numerous as the stars in the sky. 42,000 is a lot of people. In fact, it's, it's more than, than the, the population of Statesboro. In fact, it's probably more like Statesboro when the college students are back in town, which is like now, or the population of Walmart on an afternoon. It's not a lot of people still. 42,000 people in Sanford Stadium at UGA would look like a, would look, what, empty. So what's going on here? 
There's something very encouraging in this 42,360, a very insignificant number in comparison. We read this morning in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, which, by the way, Zechariah was one of the two prophets that were prophesying in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Zechariah 4.10, it's seeing we are encouraged not to despise the day of small things. You see, God is not in the business of depreciating smallness as we are likely to do. It may be an insignificant number to this world, but in this small number is God's people. You think about that. The creator of the universe, the sovereign God, he cares for 42,360 people. He did not despise the small. Brothers and sisters, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And if we compare ourselves to the world's standards, then it would be very easy to believe how insignificant and small we are. In the Bible, when numbers are given to people, when it's given of people, the population, it's often given, it's symbolic of two things. The process of sifting of people, a process of judgment, removing the chaff. The 42,000 actually is significant in the sense that God judged his people down in, to such a way where he sifted them where there was only 42,000 that would return. To the land out of the millions of Jews that there were in Israel before the exile, just 70 years earlier, only 42,000 would return in this, in this shift. The second thing, these numbers point to what? God's preserving hand. That even in the worst of times, he preserves his people, his remnant, and his elect according to his mercy and his grace for his glory. Brothers and sisters, do not despise the small. When we disconnect ourselves from faithful brothers and sisters from the past, we miss the benefit of seeing how our Heavenly Father over and over and over and over again has been faithful to his people. People that we can count. You know, Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith chapter that we, we love so much, and it tells so much of the heroes of, of the Bible. But if you miss it, in Hebrews 11, it's not really much about Abraham or Moses or David, but it's about God's faithfulness to his people. And then how his people respond in faith to God. We are here this morning as the beneficiaries of faithful men and faithful women who have endured suffering, sickness, trials, persecution, war, famine, difficulty, loss, in ways that we could never imagine. But more importantly, God has always been faithful to his people. God has always led his people. God has always cared for his people. You know, before COVID hit, the church, churches could never draw as many people to their 
services to their gatherings. They never could draw more people than a Falcons game or a Braves game. But look at us now. There's more of us here today than will probably be at the Braves game today. But I want you to understand, there's more significance in our small church gathering of 20 or so believers and the six children than the thousands and thousands who used to gather at football games and baseball games and concerts and shows and parades. We are the testimony as individuals, as a people gathered as the church, the people of God, the one, two, three, four, five, six of God's faithfulness that he is building his church and he's been doing it throughout the ages. And we are here this morning as a testimony of that. You may not have the lineage, the Christian lineage, or the genealogy that some of these have, have that they have in, in Ezra chapter 2. But if you are in Christ, then you have been grafted in. You have been brought into the branch that finds its roots, not just in Abraham, but in Christ. You have been grafted in to Christ's branch, and he has been faithful to his people. Ephesians chapter 3 is a glorious truth that we must hear again and again and again. This morning, verse 8, Ephesians chapter 3. To me, this is Paul speaking, though I am the very least of all the saints. What does that make me? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages to come. Ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the small, insignificant, tiny church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I added a little bit there, so put the brackets in there. This was according to God's eternal purposes realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have what? Boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Brothers and sisters, to despise the small, to despise churches that are small, is to despise God's faithfulness. Let's not despise what the Lord is doing because we can count them. We can name how God has been faithful to the elders and to the Andersons and to the Roberts and the Lightsies and the Deals and the Crosbys and the Beals. God is faithful. So how do we then, seeing God's faithfulness, how do we respond to God's faithfulness? How did Israel respond to God's faithfulness? How did this 42,360 respond to God's faithfulness? Well, let's look at that list just a bit closer. In verse 2, there are those 11 leaders listed. Funny enough, the list in Nehemiah actually has 12 in that particular list. 
That's a very significant number, isn't it? Twelve. The twelve tribes of Israel, the, or the, the twelve apostles, the twelve apostles. And what we notice here about these, these leaders is that they, 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 they represent less like a nation or like the 12 tribes of Israel, and yet they represent more like a called-out people. They represent more like a, a called-out people, like how the, church is, how the church is. Interesting here. It seems as if God is pointing to his people how he will gather his people together and how he's calling them into fellowship how he will call them into fellowship in Christ. And the nation of Israel will just fall into historical past. The second group is a, a list of men of Israel, verse 3 through 35. And then in verses 36 through 39, there's a, there's a list of priests that, that are returning. And the, the priests is a pretty significant number. They make up of about 10% of the returning. And that's a pretty good number. And that makes sense because, because the single purpose of them returning back to Jerusalem is to do what? To restore and rebuild the, the, the temple, that there would be a renewal, excuse me, of worship of God at the temple according to God's word and how God wanted his people to be war, how God's people, how he wanted God's people to worship him. Fourth, there's a list of Levites in verses 40, 40 through 42. The Levites is a much smaller number compared to the priests. And, and these guys served as helpers to the, to the priests. A uh, good way to look at it for us, maybe the office of deacon uh, would be something for us to maybe think of. They served the, 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 uh, the priests in the, in the temple. Fifth, there's another group called the temple servants in verses 43 through 54. And then there's another group, uh, Solomon's ser servants, in verses 55 through 58. The, the temple servants, they, weren't, they were not Levites, but they were people who were highly dedicated to serving under the Levites in the temple. Solomon's, servant, Solomon's servants, they were, if you just want to kind of put it on the role of totem pole, uh, that's probably culturally insensitive these days, that anymore hierarchy of authority, they would be more like the interns, right? The Solomon servants. The Solomon servants were people who had foreign names, and they were families who had stuck around because they had assisted in the building of the first temple and then converted to Judaism. Now, what's wonderful about them, I think is just amazing here, is that generations after generations later, their faithfulness is shown in the fact that they too are part of the remnant that goes back to Jerusalem. And they're counted in the word of God. So the Levites, the temple servants, and Solomon's servants, they were all going back to Jerusalem where there was no temple for them to serve in. They would have to wait in faith when it was rebuilt so that they could renew and restore the worship of God in that place. You see, behind each and every one of these numbers and these names 
is a person and a people who sacrificed much to go and to rebuild in hopes that they would be able to assist or lead the worship of the Lord in that place. They gave, they sacrificed, they went in faith. And yet there's another group. There's another group in, in the text in verses 59 through 63. This is a, a group of people who, who desired to go back to Jerusalem because they, they considered themselves Jews. However, they could not prove their lineage. They couldn't prove their genealogy. And there was also a good number of that group who believed themselves to be of the priestly lineage. They believed themselves to be a, a, a priest but they couldn't prove it through genealogies. So what was the outcome? What was the solution that they came up with? What would they do with these people? Well, the first thing is, is they let them come. Come with us. But if you can't be a priest, though, you cannot be a priest until, verse 63 tells us, until another priest consults what is called the Urim and the Thruim which is to say they casted lots to trust the Lord if they were going to be priests or not. And what it was is these two stones that they kept in the breastplate, and one of them said yes and one of them said no. And whichever one pulled out, that was God's answer. And that's what they had to wait on. Do you see how serious they were now taking holiness? Do you see how serious they're taking obedience and holiness according to God's word? You see, worship, worshiping the Lord is according to his word. It is not what we get to make up or what we think feels good, but it's according to how God has instructed us to worship. Holiness is vitally important for the people of God and for the priests, and for someone who may think they are a priest, but is not. It is for their good to submit to the authority of the word of God. Despite their shaky lineage, each of these groups still commit to go, to serve, to give, to wait, and to have faith, but also to be holy before the Lord God. You see, I believe this whole situation with these, with these priests that don't have, they, can't, they don't have a lineage to speak of, but they still believe themselves, I think it's pointing us to something greater. I think it's pointing us to faith. Take the sons of Barzillai, verse 61 through 62. They wanted to be priests, but they could not prove, they could not prove themselves to be sons of Aaron. They needed someone else to come. They needed another priest to come and to advocate for them. Another priest to come and do something for them that they could not do themselves. If you are an unbeliever, or when you were an unbeliever, then you are in the same place as each of those families, like the Barzillia family. You could not help yourself. 
You were a slave to sin. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And there was no way you could, with any kind of good behavior, work, or self-righteousness, save yourself from the consequences of your sin. And yet God sent a priest who could do what we could not do. And he didn't pull a stone out of his shirt. But he bore himself He bore in himself the full wrath of God on the cross. You see, your sin disqualifies you before God in every way. It says you have no lineage. It says you have no genealogy to speak of. And yet Jesus lived that perfect and sinless life that we could not live. And as our great high priest, he has made atonement for our sin like no other priest could do once and for all. And that this priest, he alone, can make you righteous and forgiven and even now a priest. He has done what we could not do ourselves. He did this so that that you and I, we we could put our faith in him alone as our Savior and our Lord and his payment and his penalty would be counted to, to you. This is how any one of us has been saved and can be saved. And worship starts. Our response to God's faithfulness in Christ alone is that we put our faith in Him. That's where faithful worship starts. It starts in believing and knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to show you something else about all these numbers. These small, insignificant numbers, but again, we said earlier, Don't despise what is small because the Lord doesn't. You know, service in the church, acts of love for one another, care and self-sacrifice in your own family, it does not need to be glamorous. It doesn't need to be big. It doesn't need to be showy to be noticed by God. No one may ever know the things that you do. The amount of diapers you have changed, the amount of messes you have cleaned, the vacuuming, the garbage hauling out, and even the prayers you have prayed for others. No one may ever know that you have been praying for them, that you've been praying for Mr. Richard and his family, that you've been praying for Dick or Kelly or Violet or anyone else. Those things may never be known. And even to you when you're praying, you think this is small and this is insignificant. But our motivation is about, isn't about making ourselves look good or even the name of Sovereign Grace Church look good. Our aim is to make Christ exalted, is to exalt Jesus Christ in his name, in his faithfulness. You see, faithful worship starts in Jesus Christ, but faithful worship also doesn't despise the small acts of obedience. The small acts of being faithful daily in life. 
And there's another way that these people, one of the, we see a wonderful way how they responded in worship in verse 68, how they responded to God's faithfulness. When they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, what did they do? They made a freewill offering for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt on that site. And notice how it says how they gave. They gave according to their ability. This sounds a lot like how Paul instructed the church to, to give on the Lord's day as he may prosper. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And so we, we, we hear from texts like this that we give, our, we give our tithes and our offerings according to what we have been given and according to what we have been, we have earned. And yet the Lord has been faithful according to the riches of his grace. It's not what was left over. It's not what could be spared. But it is what the Lord has given and same with our gifts of worship. Our gifts of, of, of serving God and serving others. When you look at this list of what they gave, it was no small number. And just to put it in perspective, it was over 565 pounds of gold and silver. That's a lot for 42,360 people. They gave generously. They gave beyond the tithe, the tenth. But we must be as well generous with what God has given us. Times were tough for them, and they had no guarantee of prosperity or even homes to live in, homes that they needed to build and businesses to, to rebuild so that they can continue to give and help and supply and steward their, their family. But they gave priority to what? Worship. They gave priority of the, the worship of God because the rebuilding of the temple so that they could worship God according to the pattern God had set for them. Believe it or not, this very last point is not about tithing. Our tithes, our gifts, our faithfulness, all of that is all about worship. It's about delighting in God himself more than the things of this world or uh, uh, our own comforts. Our faithfulness is not about us. It's about Him. To the way that God has been faithful to you, in response to how God has provided, how Jesus Christ has led us out of captivity. When your heart and your mind is affixed on the gospel, upon God's grace and his faithfulness to you, do you feel the way that these family heads did that day? That knowing that he has already provided so much for you, that he's provided everything in life and godliness, but don't you want to be faithful more? To worship him more according to how he has told us to worship. The response of God's people to God's faithfulness, brothers and sisters, is always faithful worship. At the, at the end of our time this morning, we must pause and reflect. We should reflect 
on God's faithfulness to us as his people. Oh, how the Lord has been faithful to to us. How he's been faithful to his church throughout all history. It's one of the reasons why we want to study church history. And we've been studying church history for a while now. On Wednesday nights, taking a break right now. Because we want to see God's faithfulness in history. We think it means something. That we are a people of, that have come from something. But history isn't just out there. But it represents real people who lived real lives just like you and me and how they experienced God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to them is why we are here today. He has truly been faithful to them and he has been faithful to us. He has cared for me and my family in ways more than I could ever count and surely I never deserved. He has given us his son. He has cared for his people. He sustains his people and his church. Do you have a great sense of God's faithfulness to you? That you are more than just a number, a part of a group. And if you do, and if you understand and have a sense of God's faithfulness to you, then what is your response to God's faithfulness? Is it faithful worship? You see, Israel's worship that day, even though it would still wax and wane, still should be quite challenging to us on our own convictions of worship of God in our lives. Do we worship, do you worship according to how God has told us, according to his word? Worship isn't just about singing, which has been glorious to do, and certainly commanded of us and told us to do, and we love to do it, we delight to do it. It isn't just about raising of hands or even coming to church, but worship is about obedience out of love and delight for a sovereign Savior who has been faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again to have your word. Would you teach us, O God, and show us more of your faithfulness from the scriptures and from our own lives. Let us see these things and help us to see how we can be more obedient in our worship towards you according to your word. Father, You've been so kind and so merciful to us in these days. And would you be with us now as we respond together? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.